How can the UK add five years of healthy lifespan by 2030? That question was the focus of one of the liveliest panel discussions of this year's Longevity Forum. Dr. Charles Alessi was on that panel and joins me now. Welcome, Dr. Alessi. Hi, Susan. Really nice to talk to you. You wore two hats to the forum, Senior Advisor to Public Health England and Chief Clinical Officer of HIMSS International, which is what exactly? Ah, HIMSS is a membership organization, uh, one of the largest not-for-profits in healthcare that exists. It's an organization which basically uh, uh, is uh, uh, there to support its members, um, and its mission is to drive improvements in health and care through the use of data and technology. Um, uh, my role is as the chief clinical officer uh, of the organization. Uh, in essence, uh, what we do is provide a means of communication between people involved in technology and the use of data within health and care. Uh, and we also um, assist governments and large organizations on their digital journeys. Now, your starting point when you were speaking on the panel was that a major rethink of health and care must come or nothing changes. What needs to happen to set us on a better path? Well, I, I mean, revolution in itself isn't something which, uh, you know, one should encourage without good reason. And I think it's important to just think a little as to why uh, it's important to change what we're doing. And part of that, uh, not all of it, but part of that is associated with longevity in itself, because uh, longevity brings with it an increased uh, level of multimorbidity. In other words, as we grow older, we tend to suffer from or have more medical conditions to deal with. Also, longevity brings with itself uh, retirement at some point in life. And clearly, if we have uh, an aging population, which is what we do in England, we also have an aging workforce. Hence, I don't think there's a choice. We need to change what we're doing at the moment. But what are your ideas on how we shift the paradigm from mitigation in health and care to prevention? Well, I mean, it's quite difficult to do that. Uh, but clearly, to do that, um, one of the first things we need to do is to provide a more precise uh, health and wellness approach to people to enable them to take more responsibility for their own health and care and also to get more engaged in their own health and care. So that's one part of the equation. Uh, and there are other parts of the equation. One of the most important, of course, is the financial metrics that drive health and care. And that in itself also needs to change. I mean, at present, we have a system which measures activity, which values uh, activity and remediation of bad health and ill health. I mean, a health service, a medical service fixes things that are broken. Um, uh, what we have to look to is try to make sure they break less often or if they break, they break later. Um, hence uh, the importance of prevention. But to do that, you need to change the system. Unless the system changes, clearly it will keep on providing exactly the same outputs it has always provided. Uh, a system provides the outputs it's designed to provide, and our system is, is designed to provide uh, activity. Hence, activity is what it will provide. What we need it to provide is more focused activity um, and to be more discreet around the activity it provides to ensure that people get every opportunity to remain healthier for longer. You talked about precision healthcare. What digital tools would allow for this? 
I think um, a move from the one size fits all, which we're so used to in the late 20th century, to a one size fits one, which I think is more what the 21st century is about. I mean, there are various reasons why we ended up in this space, partly uh, associated with the, the democratization of information, um, which the Internet gave us. Information is now available to everybody. Uh, and as information is available to everybody, uh, what's different is the interpretation of that information. Uh, and what's different is the fact that uh, now it's easier for people to get more informed about their health and care conditions. And as they get more informed, hopefully they'll take more responsibility for what they do. Is the major tool that you're looking at to usher in, you know, sort of the leading edge of this major change the smartphone in everyone's pocket, because that is a compiler of so much data. And yet we all have this idea now that we can't trust data collection. How do we move people away from this distrust and get them to think, yes, it's okay to surrender my data that's going to help build a profile of me? Well, I mean, you touched on the most important single issue, which is the issue of trust. And if we look to the health systems in the world, which are most successful at actually assisting the citizen in managing their own health and care, they are countries uh, which have uh, the highest trust indices in terms of the levels of trust between people and health provider or government, depending whether it's a, 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 you know, a, a state system or otherwise. Which they, countries would those be? Well, I mean, an exa- a typical example is Finland. Uh, not only are they some of the happiest people in the world, but they also have significant levels of trust in their own governments to provide their health and care services. Um, but I, I think the days of blanket consent are long gone. Blanket consent was the consent we gave, and to a degree we still give, when we use uh, a search engine or anything else around our data. In other words, you can use our data to any to, uh, you know, for any purpose you think fit. um, uh, And we only accept that once or we only sign on that once, usually when we start using an application. I think the new world is one uh, of dynamic consent. In other words, uh, a consent associated with an ongoing relationship between a health and care provider and a citizen, whereby the citizen gives consent as appropriate uh, to the health and care provider to use their data um, to, to improve the, he- uh, the health of the individual themselves. Um, uh, and there are examples of uh, countries and organizations that have developed uh, really quite significant levels of um, adherence between people and um, uh, digital technologies um, to, to achieve that within healthcare. We haven't tried that yet in England. I think we will. There are some who say who are working in the field that 97% of how we can build a profile of someone from data is collected from the person via consumer tech, a decision to buy something from one of the big online platforms. And that can build a profile more than the one and a half percent, if I'm recalling the percentage correctly, the one and a half percent of health data that is provided through the National Health Service. Well, that's that's um, I'm not sure of the figures. I think the figures for the health determinants are probably more like uh, in the mid teens rather than one percent. But you're right. Uh, the, if you look at the experience of the American um, uh, providers, the American accountable care providers, the data which they collect most avidly and they feel is most important to manage the health and care of their populations 
Uh, remember, that's in a system, in these discrete systems, whereby uh, activity doesn't drive the system. You know, wellness, population health drives the system, is, is where they live, because that gives an idea as to their uh, wealth and education, and also how they spend their money. You're absolutely correct. So part of our, our precision health approach needs to include uh, these other aspects, but it needs to include it with full, total and transparent consent. Um, uh, uh, and dynamic consent rather than um, uh, us doing things uh, in a way whereby we lose people's confidence. I think trust, I go back to that repeatedly, is the most important single issue here. What are the first steps in regaining public trust and using it to have data consent at scale? Because, you know, in our minds, we just think, oh, the social media giants or rogue nations are grabbing our details. This is the narrative we've got. And perhaps they are. But that's, you know, that's that that's by the by. I think what we can do is actually do things completely transparently, uh, totally openly in terms of the data we're collecting, reflect that to people on a regular basis so they can see uh, exactly what's happening to their data, what we're doing with their data, how we're using their data specifically to assist them. So um, does this need government policy? Well, um, um, uh, if it's a government that's providing health and care, the answer is yes. Um, uh, and in the United Kingdom, it is a government that provides uh, health, of course. The National Health Service um, uh, is the organization which provides um, not necessarily health care, but certainly uh, uh, medicine, medical service. So I think that it needs it needs government to be actively involved and and um, supporting these these uh, these initiatives. Well, someone because, has to lead it, don't they? Someone has to grab this agenda and make it happen or it won't. We'll have the status quo. Uh, I don't think we could have the status quo for very much longer because as we grow older, inevitably, more and more of us are suffering from long term conditions, which inevitably lead to more and more activity. At some point, we'll run out of practitioners care or, or you know, something has to break. We can't go on in this in this way forever. So. Um, uh, uh, I think by definition, something will happen. What I, I think we're trying to, to, to promote is the fact that it happens a little bit earlier, because if it happens a little bit earlier, it happens in a much more managed way. Uh, uh, and also in a way whereby all of us will actually get uh, more years to our life, which at the end of the day is what we all want. Life expectancy in England has increased at the rate of about one year every four years since the end of the First World War, but the rate of gain stopped in 2011. What do you say to those who argue life expectancy has, has simply topped out? Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. We're on the brink of some fundamental, really, really mind-bogglingly, you know, big changes, real big changes associated, for example, with the concepts of aging, perhaps potentially being um, uh, modifiable, modifiable using personal lifestyle and therapeutic interventions. Uh, we understand so much more about the science now than we ever did. We understand that whatever uh, the genetic makeup of individuals, there is the potential through uh, our, our behavior to alter the epigenetic switches which switch those uh, genetic markers on and off. Yes, in some cases, genetic markers are incredibly powerful and we can't change them. But in the majority of cases, there are things uh, we can do today to give us a healthier uh, life tomorrow and to, um, to ensure we age as productively as we can.
that's surely what we all want to do. Well, predictive public health would offer a more customized health and wellness offering to people. But how do we bring that in? Because as you know, from what I gathered from listening to you on the panel, you said, you know, we need it to happen now. Healthcare only changes by catharsis, but it needs to happen at speed. So what if you could take us through the three immediate steps that need to happen? Um, I think we can really start relatively quickly. And uh, for example, it's not impossible for us to start targeting some of the greater inequalities that exist within our society and really start uh, from people who potentially have uh, the most challenged life expectancy rather than perhaps the best life expectancy to show uh, what's possible uh, by, by developing a, a relationship with individuals digitally and perhaps even using things like gamification to assist them in their behavioral change. Um, uh, we have some examples of um, uh, collecting data in England um, uh, and have for the last few years. One of them is the health check. Uh, the health check is much more than um, people going to see a practitioner or going to a pharmacist and getting some basic parameters, biomedical parameters collected. It is really around having a discussion with somebody around the changes that one needs to make to one's life to minimize the risks the risky behaviours that one uh, one is exposed to and change those to less risky behaviours. And if we have to use um, uh, gamification associated with that, in other words, if we have to incentivize people to do that, it's an extremely good investment in terms of ensuring that we don't have to, uh, as a society, pay for the care that people will need earlier associated with them getting sicker quicker. When you say gamification, what do you mean? Well, people have tried various options. In some countries, they use vouchers when people pay, uh, have to buy insurance. In other words, they reward people for good behavior. By good behavior, I mean stopping smoking. Uh, I mean increasing physical activity. There are other opportunities, perhaps even to use things like cryptocurrencies to, to assist behavior and behavioral change. People react very well to that. And people who have limited financial means, of course, react even better to that. What I think is uh, probably the right approach is not necessarily to insist on banning things, but to make the healthier choices more convenient and, if possible, cheaper than the less healthy options. At the moment, the converse is true sometimes. I don't think that um, uh, should be allowed to continue. So we could add a layer of fun and maybe even a slight competitive edge to it all. Well, yes, because that also ensures that you retain contact and connection with the organizations that's assisting you make that behavioral change yourself. The more that connection is, is encouraged, the more we encourage people to get involved and get engaged, the greater the chances of success. Um, internationally, there are countries that have actually done quite a bit of work in this space and uh, are really showing some signs of success, which is really good because it encourages us that if others have succeeded, perhaps we can as well. Uh, countries like Singapore, even countries like Japan, you know, a super aging society like Japan has shown that it is possible to change people's behavior. The healthy life expectancy gulf between rich and poor in the UK, the United States and a few European countries is, is bigger. It's wider than ever. What are we doing so wrong that the countries you just mentioned are doing so much better? 
I don't necessarily think we're doing anything wrong, but I don't think we're reaching out to them in a language and a way in which they get engaged easily. I think that's the big difference. You know, offering uh, somebody who lives on the 50th floor of a, uh, a tower block um, uh, where it's really difficult to get out, where life is a, is a struggle from week to week, the potential for something like gym membership may not necessarily be the best way to get uh, somebody engaged. Uh, they're probably more uh, interested in what's going to happen to them tomorrow rather than what's going to happen to them the day after tomorrow. Similarly, having discussions with a type 2 diabetic who could be in the same situation around the importance of managing their blood sugar may not necessarily be something which um, it's very easy to have a discussion about because I think we need to customize our messaging. And I think what these countries have done is customize the messaging. And that's why the digital um, route is the one to adopt because clearly uh, the only way one can customize a message is digitally. And also the only way one can scale this up is through some digital means rather than face-to-face. -face. Otherwise, we need as many health workers, which we don't have, as we have people. Well, I think you're onto something with the gamification of it all, because I often, I often roll my eyes when I hear people say, oh, well, they just have to make better decisions. You know, if they've only got a pound or a dollar for a meal, they need to choose wisely. They have to go for the organic vegetables. And I just think, who are you kidding? They're in a spiral of doom and gloom. Their self-esteem is in the basement. You can't encourage people who feel marginalized by the world at large, by their society, to live better lifestyles by just waking up with, you know, bounding out of bed and saying, I'm going to do better today. No, they reach for a cigarette, figure out how they can spend their pound on something that fills their tummy. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think um, uh, I would actually uh, um, shorten that to two words, get real, um, because uh, I, you know, I I don't think it's possible for us to expect people to behave uh, in that way. They behave, people behave in the way uh, that's, that, that's really expected of them to a degree. And, you know, if, if I have everything else in my life, then I worry about my health, perhaps more than somebody who has nothing in their lives. And the thing they worry about most is what's going to happen to them tomorrow, not the day after. And I think we need to understand that. Yeah, we need to look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and understand that if you're way at the bottom and striving for basic shelter and basic survival, you're not going to be reachable in the way that a lot of people think. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm keen for us to start this journey with the most disadvantage because the commonest uh, challenge one hears is this is a very middle class way of approaching uh, health and care. I would suggest that's absolutely not the case. Uh, if there is one thing that somebody homeless um, uh, holds very close to their heart, it's their mobile phone. It's their only link to the world. Uh, they don't have a home, which is their link to the world. They have a mobile phone, which is their link to the world. And the lower the socioeconomic group, the more important these, these means of technology and communication are. Hence, we should use them in the appropriate way. Not by fooling people, of course, but by being as transparent and open and hopefully nudging people towards more healthy behavior. And when I say nudge, I mean nudge, not forcing people. Oh, that's the one thing. Nobody likes to be told what to do, especially 
if the middle class teller is not appreciating their very different circumstances. Would you agree, Dr. Alessi, that it's it's a much broader, deeper question? So much has to change. So many levers have to be pulled at the same time in order to be anywhere near the point where we can give most people in the UK five additional years of healthy lifespan by 2030. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we concentrated in our conversation today on the health and care aspects. We didn't talk, um, because basically we can't talk about everything, about changes to pension, changes to perception around ageing, changes to work, life balance, etc. This is part of a very much larger conversation. Dr. Charles Alessi, Chief Clinical Officer of HIMSS International and a Senior Advisor to Public Health England. Thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you very much.